You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. So we're going to start in verse 17 and read down to verse 28. So hear the word of the Lord. So while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, uh, approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are, we are able, they said to him. And he told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And so when the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. I ask for help, Lord, that you would give to all of us here, uh, especially with a passage of scripture that for some of us or maybe most of us, uh, it could be somewhat of a familiar text that we've heard a lot. And so I'm not asking for necessarily any new insights or new understanding, because I think it's really plain here, Lord, but I'm asking that you would give all of us help on how we actually live into this, that we uh, embrace this as our own and embody this as a people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And if you feel comfortable, you can take your mask off. Uh, we just ask that you guys would put it back on after taking communion. So here's, here's all I want to do this morning. Um, like I said in my prayer, I don't, I don't think this passage of Scripture is really hard to understand intellectually. I mean, I think it's pretty clear and pretty plain what Jesus is after at the end there in verses 25 through 28. I think where the difficulty lies, and uh, especially in my own life, even as I've looked at it over the course of this week, uh, and I would say for all of us, is not necessarily the understanding of this text, but the actual living into it. Like, do I really believe what Jesus is saying at the very end of it? And if I really do believe it, then what does it really look like for me to embody this? And not just kind of like know it up here, but it actually works into the very fabric of my being and I begin to live into this kind of value that Jesus is putting before us. Because what, what Jesus has been doing in chapters 19 and 20, I said this last week, but, but I'm saying it again because this is kind of the end of it is that he is reordering and realigning our values that we have. And so, as I said last week, when we, when we 
become a follower of Jesus Christ, when we put our trust and faith and we become a Christian, however you want to say that, uh, we don't automatically get deposited to us the values of the kingdom of heaven. We enter into this relationship with these values that are kind of instinctively, instinctively in us, as well as they've been reinforced and shaped by our culture and society that we live in. And so it's not like, hey, I say yes to Jesus and boom, all those are erased and now I'm living the values of the kingdom. No, those values are still there and now you've got all these new values. You're going, all right, I gotta, I gotta relearn a whole new way of being in this world. So it's, it's, a, it's a constant tearing down like I said last week, tearing down, like this is not how it's to be amongst followers of Jesus Christ, but instead, here's how to live. And yes, we do so imperfectly. And yes, we have freedom to do so imperfectly because Jesus lived it perfectly on our behalf. And that's what empowers us to hear these things without um, self-condemning nature or without this you know, heavy guilt and shame that doesn't help us at all. But we're able to hear this because Jesus has lived this perfectly for us and know that when the Spirit of God brings conviction, that that's for our good. He's bringing adjustment in our life so that we can live as full human beings in this world. And so one of those values that he looks at today is really defining for us what does it really mean to be great? I mean, all of us have got our definitions of this. What does it really mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? And what does that look like? So I just want to spend some time walking through this passage and then hopefully, Lord willing, landing with some specific application of how we can kind of live into this in the coming week. So starting in verse 17, I'm not going to read this, but this is the third time that Jesus predicts his death. Now, the unique thing about this third prediction is that he adds more detail than he ever has before. So he adds this kind of like uh, the way in which he's going to die. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. So this is the first time that the, the manner of death, his crucifixion is explicit, explicitly, can't even say that word, right? Explicitly uh, voiced to his disciples. And so, you know, we know this, but then we don't know this. Crucifixion was the worst form of punishment and not just the worst form of punishment, it is the most shameful way to die. It is a dishonorable way to die. It's humiliating. And so here's Jesus predicting his suffering, his pain, his death in such a humiliating way. This is the first time that they get this kind of detail here of Jesus' death. And then on the heels of this prediction, you have a mom, right? Who does what moms really do well. And we love our moms for this, amen, right? And, it, and it's sometimes even in our um, translations, like you see these little headings that come in there, like it, it just breaks up the flow. That heading is not in the original language. So right after predicting my death, or Jesus' death, through crucifixion, very humiliating way to die, here comes a mom. And this is what she says in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, if you're wondering who that is, approached him with her son. So this is not just her request. Obviously, based on what we can see from the context, this is the boys going, mom, will you go ask, right? Maybe he'd give you what we're wanting. Uh, she kneels before him. 
And then Jesus says this in verse 21. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that those two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. So in essence, what the mom is asking is I'm wanting you to make sure my boys, James and John, will sit in some kind of power and glory and honor in your kingdom. That's what the request is when she says, make sure my boys are at your right and at your left. I, I want my boys to be sitting in a place of glory and honor and power. I want them to be sitting above these other 10. And so this is not just the request of mom. This is the request of John and Jane. This is, this is what's in their heart and their desire. And so in essence... What the mom is asking on behalf of the boys is can you promise us that these two boys will be in a place of honor above them? It's a, it's a desire to be superior than the other 10. It's a desire to kind of have a, a gain of precedence than the other 10. Now, where do you get that? How do you know that this is what is at the heart of what James and John are saying? Well, Look at the disciples' reaction in verse 24. So when the disciples heard this, they go, man, gosh, James and John, we just love you guys. You guys are awesome. Thank you guys for stepping in there and desiring these positions. We're all for it. We're willing to lift you guys up and lower ourselves so that you can sit in a place of honor. Man, we love you, James and John. Man, you guys are awesome. Yeah. No, that's not what was said, right? So when the disciples heard this, what did they do? They became indignant. They were angry. Because they knew exactly what James and John were asking. They were saying, you're wanting to be in a place of honor that's above us. You're wanting to be more superior than us. You want to make sure that you are on kind of a platform that's making us below you. And when they heard this, man, they were angry. Now, the interesting thing about this, and if you kind of look at all the predictions of where Jesus predicts his death, there's three of them. And this pattern happens in all three of them. And Bruner in his commentary uh, brings this out. I thought it was very, very insightful. And I've got it on the screen. So it says this, Jesus takes his disciples down three times into the valley of his suffering Messiahship, teaching that his death must precede his resurrection. Suffering, then glory. Humiliation, then glory. And then right afterwards, next slide there, in all three predictions, the disciples take Jesus and themselves up to the mountain of glory, right? Hoping that the, that Messiahship means their victory, not their defeat. Their greatness, not obscurity. Their power, not servitude. So you see that prediction of death? Here comes the mom, Right? But look what Jesus does. And three more times, Jesus must take his disciples back down into the valley and teach them afresh that the way up is down. It's exactly what Jesus does here. Look at verse 25. And Jesus called them over, called all these disciples over. And he said this, you know that, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high position act as tyrants over them. So he's just stating kind of the way leadership was in this time, the way authority was kind of exercised in this time. And the, 
And the word that's translated lorded over them and tyrants over them is a word that both of those words have kind of, it's a compound word. And the beginning of each of those words is this word that means down. And so in essence, he's speaking to kind of the reality of how um, leadership and authority is exercised in this time, the way it's experienced. And the way it's experienced is that through their power and influence, they're always wanting to push people down. They're not wanting to lift people up through their power and their position. No, they want to take their power and their position and keep people under them. They're tyrants. And look what Jesus says. Verse 26, it must not be like that among you. I love how the NIV translates this. Not so with you. Jesus is creating this um, countercultural community, this, this alternative way of living, this, um, this way of living that, that shows the world that there is a better way of living, this way of living that's adopting and living into values that is not found in the world that they currently exist, but it's actually living into the values of the world that is coming. This is not how it's supposed to be with you. Instead, this is how it's supposed to be. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your, say it out loud, servant. I know it's a little off because we don't have it underlined. Everybody gets freaked out. I don't know what to do here. But if you want to be great, you're a servant. Verse 27, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your, say it out loud, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So servant and slave, what Jesus is doing here is kind of echoing the realities of this day. And so the word that he uses for servant is basically describing a table waiter. It's someone that would be hired to kind of maintain the, uh, the home and the household of a master, specifically fixing and preparing food. It's someone that's about doing things for other people rather than for yourself. And even the word uh, in its original language had a, a sort of a, um, as one translator talks about this ignoble ring to it. It was just a dishonorable work. No one looked up to this. No one wanted to pursue after this kind of career. And then the next word that he uses is even more demeaning than the servant word. He uses the word slave, which describes someone who is not free to do what they wish, but is bound to obey a master. So slave, even more so than a servant, is at the very bottom of the pecking order in society in this time. They were the very last and hear, man, hear afresh what Jesus is saying. That these two lowest positions on society's scale, Jesus does something profound with them. He reverses their status in the community of the disciples and says, that is great. They are first. I don't know, man. I mean, I try to imagine what the disciples think here. You know, I, I grew up as a, a young boy watching different strokes and 
I know I'm kind of dating myself here, but uh, I can't even remember his name right now, but I just remember talking, what you talking about, Willis? So the phrase was etched in my head forever and ever, and just anybody grew up on, you know what I'm talking about. And that's kind of what I think the disciples may have responded to. It's like, what are you talking about? Because just like in our society, greatness is defined by how many people serve you. Prominence is defined by how many people report to you. And Jesus is absolutely reversing that. Now, actually, greatness is defined by how many people you get to serve, not how many people serve you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, the person in your midst who wants to be great must, must make the fundamental decision to be the servant of all. That we're going to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. We're not bearing down in order to keep people down. We're not using our power and position to flourish ourselves. We're actually using our power and position to flourish others, that we're not here for them to serve our needs. We're actually here to serve other people's needs. And the greatest example of this is who? I mean, he refers to himself just as the son of man, right? Which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that the Son of Man is God in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. Just like we sang just a few minutes ago, He is the Lord of Lords. He's, he's worthy of every one of us giving all things to Him and serving Him. He's the only human being that's ever walked on this face of the earth that's worthy of all of that. But what did He do? He said no to that. He didn't say, I'm not here to, to be served. I'm actually come to serve. I'm come to give my life as a ransom for many. And that act of self-sacrifice redefined for the entire world what honor and greatness look like. Sometimes we forget that before Jesus showed up on the scene and offered his life as a self-sacrifice for us, honor and greatness was basically defined by just how you bragged about yourself and how awesome you are and how, I mean, read biography. I never have, but you, I read portions of biographies of people way before Jesus showed up on the scene. And that's kind of what they would do. They would always kind of show off their resume. This is what I've done. I've done this. I've done that. I'm, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. And if we read that today, we're going, man, what an arrogant punk. I have no, no time for this kind of biography. We just throw it down. We like the kind of stories where someone, you know, kind of carries the, the characteristics of humility where they use their power and position to serve other people and lift them up. And the reason why that's the case and that feels really normal to us is because of this event that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave of his life. We are in a cruciform society where we, where we look at the cross as something that we put on top of a mountain or on the top of a, of a building like ours. And then that time in the first century, like, oh my God, Goodness, that was so far from someone's mind to put the cross at the center point of a building. It was a shameful way to die. But Jesus redefined greatness. He redefined honor to where, no matter if you're a Christian or not, it just feels instinctive for you to be humble. That's because of Jesus. I love what John Dixon says in his little book, Humilitas. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to get it. It's a great book on humility. 
But he says this, talking about this, um, that what Jesus did, his sacrifice, this model of servanthood, this is what it did. Honor has been redefined. Greatness recast. If the greatest man we have ever known chose to forego his status for the good of others, greatness must, not just maybe, good idea, right? Greatness must consist in humble service. The shameful place, which is the cross, is now a place of honor. The low point is the high point. Who's great in the kingdom of heaven are those who use their power and position to serve, not to be served, where you actively are promoting the good of others. This is who is great in the kingdom. Do you believe this? Do you live like this? Do you kind of embody this way of living? Is this value like in the forefront of your life? I think it's been one of the struggles of this text for me this week is like, it's kind of like preaching Christmas, you know what I'm saying? I love Christmas. Please hear me. You guys know I love Christmas. But trying to do sermons during Christmas is really hard. It's like, man, all right, same kind of story. I got to think through what I'm saying. How can we bring a new light to the same story that we've heard for years and years and years? And I feel a little bit of the same way about this text where a lot of us have heard this over and over and over. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just kind of go and live by a whole other set of values instead of really believing and living into this. The New York, New York Times did an article several years ago called Happiness 101. came out about a little over 10 years ago. And in this article, um, they were describing kind of positive psychology, which is basically a branch of psychology that seeks to take a scientific and an empirical approach to what makes people happy. And what they found in their research is that those that seek um, and do things just for themselves, for the, the sole purpose of getting pleasure. That's all they do. They seek and do things or get things, you know, in order to, um, you know, give them pleasure. What they found, this is their research, right? It actually didn't lead to any happiness. It actually made them more unhappy. And they talk about this, and I meant to ask Kathy this word before I got up here, but I totally forgot. I meant to ask her last night before I went to bed. Um, but I think it's hedonic, H-E-D-O-N-I-C, hedonistic, you know, the pursuit of happiness. They talk about it being like this treadmill, this hedonistic treadmill that you get on to where you kind of get addicted to pleasure, that you need more pleasure fixes, and they keep growing and growing and growing because the more you do or the more you get, it never really truly satisfies. It just kind of keeps you know, you got to have more in order to get to this place of contentment. So, but what they found out in this scientific study, that the best way to increase your happiness is to actually, wait for it, to do acts of selfless kindness, to serve others, to pour yourself out for needy people. Hmm. 
That sounds really familiar. And none of us should be surprised, right? Because all of humanity is created in the image of God. And even though sin has distorted that image, there's still hints of values that are congruent with the way we're supposed to live. And so when we live like that, even when we're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God does not dwell in us, it makes sense. It feels right. Researchers pointed out that when you are leading an unselfish life of service to other people, it gives you a sense of meaning and of being useful and valuable and of having a life of significance. So serving one another is not just about what defines greatness. I would also say it is the path to a great life. So once again, here's my dilemma. What does this look like? We can all say, yeah, I got it. I'm there. I hear you. What does this look like? Let me give you a, a few thoughts here. And I don't know, hopefully this is helpful. It's been helpful for me. Sometimes what I think is helpful for me may not be helpful for you, but I'm the one up here. So hopefully it's going to be helpful for you. Amen. Uh, I think first, um, when I started thinking about like, how does this look like tomorrow morning? I think it's more of like a mindset. Uh, another word I even like to use uh, is like posture. So like, what is your mindset when you get up and go to work tomorrow? What is your mindset when you go home and you're with your spouse or you see the home responsibilities? What is your mindset when you roll into school? Are, are you... Is your mindset really thinking about how I can serve someone else? Is your mindset really kind of thinking through uh, what are ways that I can use my position and power? And everybody in this room, I don't have to argue this, but we have some elements of influence, position, and power. How are you using that to help another person to flourish? Are there tasks? I know there are for me that seems too low for you. that you've created this little mental list at work or at home or whatever. It says, no, I ain't doing that. That's not what my position demands. What if you approached with a mindset that nothing is beneath you? Nothing. What if you kind of have more of a mindset that, I mean, maybe this is a little out there. I don't know. But no matter who you come in contact with over the course of this week, that your mindset is like, how can I serve them? What can I do in this like 30-second interaction to serve them? I ran into a, a friend of mine this week. Um, and, and please hear me, I, I'm not anti-handshakes. I'm fine with handshaking right now during this season. Like, uh, sometimes we can read into things I say up here, and it's like, ah, I didn't really mean that. So, so I just want to say that on the, on the front end. But I, I, I ran into a friend of mine this week. Hadn't seen him in a long time. And um, uh, I said hi to him, and the first thing he did um, was kind of like stick his hand out, and he said something like this. He said, I'm not afraid. I'm not fearful. Put her there, Lyle. Not, you know, 
shook his hand. I'm like, not anti-handshaking, all right? There is something, yeah, hey, good to see you. I walked around from there and put some antibacterial stuff on my hands. <laughs> but I did, I just started thinking about that. And like, I'm not, man, I say this in all humility, but that's kind of the problem. It's not about him. The problem with that sentence was, I'm not afraid. I'm not fearful. It's not about you. Like if we're really taking on this mindset that the greatest are those who serve and that the community of God's people, the first thing that they should be on your mind is not you. It's them. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter? Do everything without, you know, apart from selfish ambition. Think of, I'm butchering it like crazy right now, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It's that passage, don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. It's not about, hey, I'm not afraid, I'm not fearful. Well, good for you. Maybe the person you're shaking hands with is. Maybe there's big concerns for them. Maybe they're kind of freaking out about this. And so someone who has this mindset, this value that Jesus is going, this is where greatness is found. And if followers of Jesus Christ would live like this, this society would feel a little more saltier. We would feel a little bit more of a change in our culture and in our context that we live in right now. But my concern is this, is that all of us, including me, we think I, I'm not afraid. I'm not fearful. <laughs> love it. Love the laughter. You're getting after it. Sometimes it is humorous and sad at the same time. Look, I, God's got a lot of work to do on me, so I'm not trying to point fingers at someone specifically and condemn them in any way. I'm just trying to Expose a mindset that's just in us, guys. It is in us. And Jesus, graciously, just like he did with the disciples, is coming to you and saying, hey, come over here. Let's have a conversation. Here's what's great. This is not to be the way it is for you. Mindset. Second one, and I'll be fast here. I don't have like illustrations and all these. Is practice. I do think serving is a, is a discipline. I think there's ways that we spontaneously do this throughout our week, and maybe Lord cultivate in us to where we do it spontaneously. But at the same time, I think there is discipline. You need to discipline yourself and practice serving. Dallas Willard says it like this: I serve another to train myself. Don't you love that word? To train myself away from arrogance to train myself away from possessiveness, to train myself away from envy, to train myself away from resentment, to train myself away from covetousness. So if you're having trouble coveting, if you're having trouble with resentment, you're having trouble with envy, you're having trouble with possessiveness, you're having trouble with arrogance, then guess what Jesus would say? Start serving. Practice serving. Make it one of your disciplines. Third one of how this looks and how you can do this is, 
is I think you need to remind yourself often of what Jesus said here, because I'm telling you what, when you start doing this and living this way, it won't feel great. (laughs) It won't feel like greatness. It won't. It might feel like weakness at times. You might get passed over, ignored. You might not get the position. I mean, you won't get thank yous, right? Amen, moms. It's the most thankless job in the world. I mean, goodness gracious. You don't get a lot of high fives and a pat on the butts from your kids. Well, pat on the butt kind of weird, but high five, right? You know, pat on the butt might be a little too much there, uh, even with your kid. But we need to remind ourselves often that Jesus sees your work, that Jesus sees our work, doing dishes, mopping floors, paying bills, buying groceries, changing diapers, picking up toys, stepping on toys, dropping cuss words every once in a while, (laughs) folding laundry. Those are not barriers to your self-fulfillment. They're actually ways that you serve, ways that you're great in the kingdom of heaven. So let me ask you, what's a small act? Doesn't it be a big giant leap? I'm going to promise this. Just a little small thing that you can even begin today to live into this value. Maybe it begins with repentance. To go to a friend, relationship, co-worker, spouse. Maybe some of our kid, I don't know. Maybe it begins with repentance. That your mindset has been more of like, hey, you're here to serve me instead of me serving you. I'll close with this. Um, we also need to recognize that Sometimes our serving can be self-serving. It kind of, there's the danger, isn't it? That sometimes our unselfish living can actually be for selfish reasons that I'm serving in order to fill some kind of lack and need in me. And whenever that begins to happen, that has a way of kind of destroying relationships and things go sideways. And the only remedy so that I can serve for the sake of the person that I'm serving and for the sake in the name of Jesus Christ and not for my benefit primarily. The only remedy is when we look to Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for many. The only way that we can be set free from this self-serving trap is when we look to Jesus. And if he is indeed a substitutionary sacrifice, if he has paid the debt for all of my sins, which he has, if he has proved to our insecure, skittish little hearts that we are worth everything to him, then we have everything we need in him. So we don't do good and serve others in order to get a relationship with God, nor do we do good and serve others in order to feel some lack in us because we have all we need in him. And so I can freely serve someone without saying, what am I getting in return? What are you going to do? Are you going to thank me? Are you going to pat me? Give me a high five, pat me, whatever. You high five, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need that because I have all of that in him. I don't, I don't serve 
for something, I serve from worth, value, completeness, fullness, so that I can serve you with no strings attached. I love how Tim Keller says it, and I close with this quote. If we really understand the cross, I love what he says here, we're blasted out into the world in joyful humility. That's what we need with followers of Jesus in this time. Blasted out into the world with joyful, not like, oh, here I go again. God serve you. No, joyful humility. Humble ourselves before one another because I have everything I need in Christ. Now, you don't need to serve people, but you want to serve them, to resemble the one who did so much for you, to bring him delight. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives you a motivation. Listen to this last line here. For unselfish living that doesn't rob you of the benefits of unselfishness even as you enact it. You, you hear what he's saying? Like, there are benefits. It's proven scientifically. Leave that quote up here just for a second, Kevin. Scientifically, that when you serve, there's something goes on in you that makes you happy. And so the beauty of the gospel is you don't forfeit that. But now you, you don't need that. You don't serve to get that. You already got it in Christ. Now you can serve freely. You can serve with, with, with no strings attached. But even in the midst of doing that, you're still getting the benefits. That's the beauty of the gospel, and that's the beauty of Jesus. And that's why we worship him and love him so much. So may God, creating us a community of people that are blasted out into this surrounding community in joyful humility. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.